Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Mad Mamluks. I'm Mahin, and I'm joined today by my co-host Sim. And on today's show, we welcome back our number one most downloaded guest, Ismail Royer. Ismail, assalamu alaikum. How's it going? Wa alaikum assalam. Alhamdulillah, it's going really well. Man, your show with us about your story, uh, I think starting from like 92 to the time you landed in prison, really... Man, people, the comments we got, people love that show. I mean, one guy told me, you guys need to stop podcasting. You can't get any better than this. Yeah. <laughs> it's like once you've made it that big, it's like, yeah, there's nowhere else to go but down. So, uh, mashallah, yeah. uh, you know, people really, I think your story really resonated with people. And I think, and I, fortunately, I had a fortunate uh, opportunity to meet you, I think, just last weekend in D.C. And just like, and, and you know, it's the thing about being Muslim, I always, rem- I always recall, is like we were at, with Rashid Dar, who's a guy, you know, we, that we've talked to as well. We were at his place. And like these guys, you know, both you and him are people I just recently met. But I think the Brotherhood of Islam is something that's so deep um, that we just don't, you know, that sometimes we shouldn't take it for granted. I think other, you tell people from other traditions, that I don't know if they have that or not. I know it's last night, enough. Sim and I had a chance to meet with one of our listeners from Canada. He happened to be in town, and just like, like I don't know, was yeah. would you think? It's like you meet you meet yeah, somebody, man. and you're just like, it's like you you're, you're like best friends that you've never, even though your first time you're meeting well, the guy. First of all, it's like we're so few and far in between practicing Muslims, at least who are involved in some kind of dawah and, or whatever we're doing here. We need to work together, and it just seems like out of ten million Muslims that are in the West, uh, Australia, Canada, UK, and um, the United States. It seems like I think I would probably say ten to twenty thousand people who are even really involved in Dawa in in some way in terms of setting up something online in media and whatever you know. So just just forming those uh, bonds and uh, those alliances that hey you know we're uh, we're gonna we're gonna watch each other's back and we're gonna look out for each other and and working towards that that's that's so important. And I I think as well. Um... But first of all, Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, Salatu Wassalamu Ala Rasulullah. You know, I th- I think as well that, Inshallah, when you all have the same intentions, which is to please Allah and to um and when you have a desire for good for the Muslims and you have desire for good for uh, non-Muslims as well, and you know that's like when you're on when you're on that page, then you know really you know um, you you can vibe together, you know, and I think that's why we you know we meet each other at any time and and we recognize in each other's faces immediately, you know who who we are, you know. Let's say real recognizes real, you know. So yeah, let's kind of start off where we left off last time. Uh, it's almost yeah. like. Just as we wrapped up uh, the actual timeline of the events last time, you know, yeah. you were working at the law firm. And if you recall, we, you know, I think ABCBS News or one of the news was a Time magazine. I think they called uh, it Newsweek. 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 Was it? Yeah. They called yeah. and not yeah. knowing you were working, you were working for the law firm, law firm at the time. And yeah. they said, like, oh, we were just trying to uh, we heard that the FBI is going to arrest Randall Royer on Monday. Yeah, and they yeah. eventually got you the, the Friday. They didn't wait till Monday, and yeah. you mentioned that was the last day of freedom you had until just several months ago, early 2017. And I think when people, like a lot of people, don't know when we mentioned that you're our number one show. A lot of time, I, first thing I just say is like, yeah, this this brother, he just he spent 14 years in jail, two and a half years in uh, solitary confinement. I even had some of my non-Muslim coworkers listen to your show because it was so like the story was so mind blowing. Yeah. Um, 
But like, talk to us from that point on. Like, you your last day of freedom, you know, and then just kind of walk us through like what what happened after that, so to speak. And then we'll, we'll probably delve into some issues and interject accordingly. What happened is that I thought that I was going to be arrested on Monday. And so Thursday night, I went to sleep thinking that the next morning I was going to go to a news conference that my lawyers, Ali Tamimi's lawyers, and uh, my co-defendant's lawyers, who we knew were going to be arrested along with us, you know, we arranged uh, we arranged to have a, uh, you know, this news conference at the National Press Club, and um, I thought that I was going to be going to this in the morning. And so I went to sleep Thursday night. My dad flew in from St. Louis so that he could do the um, news, go to the news conference with, uh, uh, with me and with the lawyers. And so my dad was there. Went to sleep Thursday night with, uh, with my wife, you know, and uh, 6 o'clock in the morning, the uh, extremely loud banging noise on the door. Bam, bam, bam. Um, FBI, you know, um, they came in and... Uh, I went out, I, I jumped up and went to go answer the door and showed just to make sure that they could see my hands um, because I had my, you know, my kids were in there and my dad was there and I didn't want any problems, you know, obviously it was, uh, I was just uh, ready to, um, to go along, you know, peacefully. So, you know, I, I, I opened the door, showed my hands, everything's fine, you know, let, let, you know whatever, let them, let them uh, arrest me. My daughter, Fatima, who was about, you know, three at the time was sitting on the, um, Sitting, uh, or no, sorry, she was uh, actually, I think, five. She was sitting on the couch watching the whole thing. She'd woke up, woken up, and so she was sitting there watching um, everything, and my son as well. And um, so they took me, and I went into a car. They took me into a, you know, in a, in a the FBI took me in a car to the um, FBI building and sat me down and asked me if I uh, wanted to waive my rights and, and give them a statement, and I said no. Um, I... I need to speak to my lawyer. As I'd been saying, they'd been trying to um, they talk to me for several months, and I said, "No, I, you know, no, guys. Like I said, I'm going to need to have my um, my lawyer uh, with me." And so they uh, then uh, booked me or whatever, and then took me to the Alexandria courthouse uh, holding uh, facility. And they told me, uh, "Yeah, we, you know, you may be seeing some of your friends coming along here any minute." And I was like, "Okay, well." And um, so I'm sitting in the courthouse uh, holding facility, just kind of like leaning with my head against the wall, thinking, you know, what in the heck? How did I get myself into this situation? You know, and um, then in comes uh, in comes uh, a couple friends of mine, um, Idris Sarat, and then here comes uh, Masoud Khan, and then here comes uh, you know, uh, here comes all these other people. You know, and so so I was like, you know, Subhanallah, what is that? What is happening here? You know. So here I'm sitting there in the we're sitting in this holding cell with all of our paintball buddies, you know, and we're, you know, we're looking at each other like, oh my God, what is, what did we get ourselves into, you know? So, um, and they they took us for uh, oh yeah, someone's lawyer came and saw them and gave them a copy of the indictment because we hadn't seen the indictment. The indictment had been sealed up until then. So they brought the indictment with them back from you know they saw their lawyer they brought it back to the holding cell and we're all looking at it and we're like man, where did they get all this information from? You know I mean? It was just like a lot of just, you know, detail, you know, and, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, well, you know what? I mean, there's a grain of truth to, to a lot of this, but they've somehow put a spin on it to where like we're violating like, you know, you know, 18 different laws or something, you know, and, and I, I was just not aware that, you know, that really that my um, actions on behalf of, 
um, you know, Kashmir and stuff like that were violating all these um, laws. And later we challenged it, of course, in, in court and said, you know, this is, you know, vi you know these charges are, are bogus. They don't hold up under the law. And, you know, the judge, uh, you know, rejected our motion to dismiss the indictment and said, no, these this is proper use of the laws. Um, you know, if these actions actually took place, if the defendants took these actions, then this would violate the law. So, you know, um, I came to realize slowly that actually, you know, we, you know, we were in some deep trouble and this wasn't going to be something that we were just going to easily be able to walk out of. And it was the weirdest thing after, you know, we went to our, uh, we went to our preliminary hearing and, um, for some reason, my, uh, the prosecutor, I didn't have an attorney at the time, for some reason, the prosecutor, um, at the arraignment said, uh, your honor, um, Mr. Royer's attorney is Kamal Nawash. So Kamal Nawash is a local, uh, you know, colorful character, uh, Arab American type of guy um, who's, um, I don't know, for some reason, I, it was just a weird moment for me because Kamal Nawash was like a guy known for like hating, hating like me and hating like, <laughs> hating like the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood oriented Islamic organizations in D.C. that I've been working for for 10 years, you know, so. So I was like, come on, Nawash, what? You know, that was like someone pointing, like, if, if Majid Nawaz was a, you know, an attorney and the and the prosecutor says Majid Nawaz is his attorney, that, that's what it was like to me, you know? So I was, <laughs> like, I was like, oh, this is a conspiracy from beginning to end, you know, I was, I was all paranoid. But anyway, then they took me after the arraignment, they took me back to jail. And so I remember thinking, you know, how would I handle jail? You know, would I be able to handle it okay or whatever, you know, and how would I act? And, you know, cause I'm not like a street guy or anything. And so they, you know, the Alexandria jail, uh, you know, uh, is a pretty, uh, I don't know, as, as, as places go, it's not too bad of a, a place, but it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of gang, um, gang members there, uh, MS-13 and, um, and you know, just due to the area and a lot of guys from DC, uh, from the city uh, there and stuff like that. So the jail is probably about 45% black, 45% um, Hispanic, and about, you know, 10% other, you know, and most of those other are like Asians, you know, so like, so I'm white, you know, so, I, you know, it was, um, it was a very um, uh, strange experience, ma mainly because people make a lot of assumptions, you know, so they assume in jail, and I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be real here, you know, people see a white guy in jail and they think, oh, this guy's soft, you know? And so, so people will test you a lot, you know? So I got tested a lot in that jail. Um, Did you have to come and, in and make an impression? That's what they always say, at least uh, from the movies that you have to go in and beat up the, the little guy first and show them what a badass you no, are. And then... No, it's not like that. It's just, it's just that you're, you're gonna, um, you just have to keep your head up and you have to walk, uh, walk with your shoulders, you know, squared and you have to, you know, keep your wits about you and be very respectful to people. But at the same time, you know, uh, have an attitude, um, that also is like clear that you're not scared of other people, you know, even if you are, <laughs> because everyone's scared, you know, uh, everyone's got some, uh, anxieties and, and, and that type of thing, but you can't, uh, in any way, uh, show it. You have to have, you have to have a permanent look on your face that is between, it is not threatening to others on the one hand is not belligerent, but on the other hand is not like, you know, weak and, um, you know, uh, so that's a very difficult, it's a it type tightrope to walk, but you eventually, eventually become second nature. So, um, that County jail was not the, the problem for me there. I didn't really have a problem so much with, uh, 
you know, violence or, or whatever, although there was a certain amount of, of, of that. But the real issue there was fighting my case, you know. So I'm, I'm over in that county jail trying to fight my case, going to the law library every day. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to deal with my wife. There's a library like, at the jail? Yeah, the, every every facility is supposed to have by law a um, a law library where you have access to, you know, uh, the law and stuff, and you can you know you can research your case. And so that's what I was doing every day as I was spending hours in this law library trying to figure out what the heck I was charged with. You know, what are these what are these statutes? What is two three three nine A? What is two three three nine B? What is the Neutrality Act? What is you know, what's 924C, what, you know, uh, use of a firearm during in relation to a crime of violence. I was charged with like 15 different firearms charges, you know, and, and, and like most of them were in Pakistan, you know. So my, how am I being charged with firearms, using firearms in Pakistan in the United States, you know, in the United States court? This didn't make sense to me. So there were all kinds of things that I had to start trying to f uh, figure out and start trying to learn about, um, you know, and I was already pretty you know, familiar with the legal system, having, you know, worked uh, in, uh, you know, the um, civil rights um, uh, employment uh, law uh, at CARE for many years. Um, but I had to start like, you know, I had I had to start becoming familiar with an area of the law that I had not really um, dealt with much. And but my previous legal experience gave me a basis for, um, you know, pretty quickly getting a handle on what my um, what my case uh, what my charges were about and so um, you know I wrote actually I helped to write many of my um, uh, pretrial motions and I gave my notes and stuff to my lawyers and they used that stuff and, and thought it was very good and as a matter of fact um, one of the arguments that I was making back then in 2003 uh, may wind up inshallah getting Ali Tamimi released um, uh, this, uh, 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 you know, in, in the in the coming uh, months. Now we'll talk more about that. Um, but uh, because it's a very big deal. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, uh, we're waiting on a, uh, the Supreme a Supreme Court hearing, and there's some drama there for legal nerds, which I'll um, you know explain about. But in any event, um, what happened is that as I was looking at this these laws, I started to see that um, if the government was able to convince the judge that this indictment was theoretically sound. In other words, like that if these acts were committed, then that would violate these laws, okay? If they were able to convince the judge that these laws actually applied to these facts, then we would be screwed because we had people who, five of our, my, as I mentioned, five of my co-defendants almost immediately started cooperating. And they had actually been cooperating from before we before we were even indicted. They'd been cooperating, so that's actually how they had all this information in the indictment. And so, uh, what happened is that because in conspiracy law, and this is very important to re to realize, if you're charged with a conspiracy, then the people who who uh, were or who are charged as your co-conspirators, anything that they say about you is going to be um, given a great deal of weight. So let's say like I and John Smith over here decide to rob a bank, okay? And we go and we buy some ski masks. And then we say, "You know what? Let's 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 bail on this idea. This is a stupid idea, you know? And we don't we don't uh, we just we we decide not to to follow through with it." Now, let's say John over here, John Smith, later gets arrested for selling drugs. 
And John Smith says, we, uh, you know, the government says, hey, uh, you know, we're going to put you away for 30 years unless you give us some information about some crimes that you know about. And he says, well, yeah, you know what? Me and Ismail, we agreed that we would rob this bank and we even bought ski masks, but we abandoned the idea. And so the government says, oh, really? And so then they charged me with conspiracy to rob a bank and they're charging me with, you know, um, I'm facing now 10, 20 years. Why? On the basis of the fact that, number one, we agreed on something, and number two, that what we agreed to do was a felony. So the, it doesn't matter if you later, if you never follow through with it, the, the agreement itself is the crime. The agreement to commit a felony is itself a conspiracy, um, which is punishable by actually five years. And then if there's a fire, firearm involved, like let's say instead of the ski mask, we decided to buy a gun and we bought the gun. And then we just abandoned it and we threw the gun in the river. The fact of that gun having been involved in this case at all now makes it a mandatory mandatory minimum of, you know, five to 25 years, depending on how, you know, the government wants to um, uh, apply the, fa the facts, you know, or, or what, the, what the details of the facts are. So um, what, and, the, and this guy who is now, test uh, who is now telling the, the government this and gets me indicted, if he goes and he testifies in court, his... Uh, statements about me are going to be absolutely determinative. There, there. If he is testifying that that um, that uh, this happened the way that you know the the way that the government's saying that it happened, and he his story is consistent, like it's not internally uh, you know um, not making sense. But if it's consistent and everything, then I'm I'm screwed. I'm going to I'm going to prison. You know and. So why? Because it's the conspiracy. So we were uh, we were charged. Everything we were charged with were conspiracies. We were we, we didn't we were not charged with any substantive what's called substantive offenses. We weren't charged with actually invading India. We weren't charged with actually supporting Al Qaeda or something. We were charged with conspiring to do these things. And so then you have on top of that you have these 924C charges. 924C is use of a firearm during in relation to a crime of violence. So the crime of violence is the conspiracy. Um, the Fourth Circuit, which is the circuit that we're in, out of Richmond, based in Richmond, Virginia, has said that conspiracies are crimes of violence as uh, defined in 924C, the, the the statute. So the crime of violence, uh, crime of violence, is defined in 924C as any offense that has um, a substantial. Um, uh, risk that the use of uh, that force will be used against the person or property of another. That's a very important definition because what I was looking at when I was when I was researching this stuff in the law library in, in 2003 was how is a conspiracy uh, how does that risk violence? Because you know, let's say me and John Brown over John Smith over here agree to do something. There's no risk of violence there. You know, it's, yeah, if we wind up following through with our plans, now there's possible violence, but just a mere agreement, there's no risk of violence in a mere agreement. So this was, my theory was that conspiracy in and of itself is not a crime of violence as defined by this uh, 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 gun statute, by this firearm statute. And I was saying that um, the Neutrality Act is not a crime of violence because the Neutrality Act, this is one of the things I was charged with, which is setting on foot a military expedition against a friendly nation, which was India. So I was saying that it's merely setting on foot something, uh, getting together basically a group of guys and saying, hey, let's, uh, 
let's invade uh, India or something like that, right? So merely just getting together and, and planning this thing is not in and of itself um, a risk of violence. So so this was this was my argument back in 2003, and my lawyers, God bless them, they uh, actually took my arguments and put them into uh, motions and tried to get the indictment dismissed, or at least the firearms charges dismissed, because the firearms charges carried mandatory minimum sentences of up to life in prison. And the, the conspiracies, there were like six conspiracies charged, they themselves carried a mandatory maximum, I mean, excuse me, a statutory maximum of like 15 years in prison. So there is, so if, if, if we could have gotten the, the firearms charges dismissed, we would have been left only with the conspiracy charges and we would not have been facing that much time. So even there, so they're the worst case scenario. If we could have gotten the firearms charges dismissed, if the judge would have agreed that, yeah, you're right, um, these conspiracies that are being charged are not crimes of violence as the definition, um, as the statute, um, the firearms statute defines it, then I'm going to dismiss these firearms charges. If she'd have done that, then we would have been, instead of facing life in prison going to trial, we would have been facing only uh, 15 years which you know perhaps would have been um, something uh, worth um, uh, worth uh, gambling on, but in any event, what happened was that the judge rejected our arguments. Okay, so so real quick, just... the firearms charges were from your work with Les Taiba, or was it yeah. when the cop found? Remember, you got pulled over um, after nine yeah. eleven, and there was like a gun in the Quran and like your passports in the car. Right. So I was tr- I was charged with. Several um, firearms charges. I was charged with uh, possession possession of a firearm during in relation to a crime of violence. That uh, that possession charge was related to the gun that was found in my car um, uh, right after September 11th that I was trying to sell. So um, uh, they, how was that possessed during in relation to a crime of violence? They said because um, I was in a state of conspiring at that time, and so. Not that I was involved in any violence, but I was in a state of conspiring. And so the conspiracy being a crime of violence, um, because I had a gun in relation to that, because I was using the gun for target practice or something like that, um, then that was, um, you know, that was, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it sounds totally insane, but, you know, under the law that, you know, that actually my judge found that that was a legitimate use of the firearms charge and that and that you know um, the statute applied to this behavior. So there is the uh, possession of the firearm. Okay, then there was use of a firearm. I had use of a firearm during relation to a crime of violence because they said that my firing uh, an anti-aircraft gun at Indian positions in Kashmir was um, a uh, you know was during in relation to the conspiracy to invade India, so or to fight against India. So. Um, we said, hold on a minute. How is first of all, as we said, you know, as I mentioned, that even though I was actually like, yes, admittedly shooting at Indian soldiers, but at the same time, um, the the charge was not shooting at Indian soldiers. The charge was conspiracy to set on foot a military expedition. So I was charged with a conspiracy. Okay. So what I was actually, even the fact that even though I was admittedly you know, uh, involved in, um, you know, uh, violence and shooting against shooting at Indian troops. Nevertheless, the, the actual charge in the indictment is conspiracy. So if the, um, if conspiracy is not a crime of violence, then you can't, then this, um, this anti-aircraft gun can't, ha- can't be used, 
um, can't, I can't be charged with it. Now, but what happened is that uh, our, other, our other argument was, and the, as I mentioned, the judge didn't buy that. The judge said, no, conspiracy is a crime of violence and blah, blah, blah. But what the other issue was, was that um, we said that how can I be charged in a United States court for shooting a gun in Pakistan? You know, how is that even possible? So what the, um, the, the judge found and held was that 924C has extraterritorial um, effect, meaning that, um, uh, okay, so the, the, not to get into too, uh, too, too much detail here, but laws in general um, that Congress passes are deemed not to be applicable when you commit um, uh, those offenses outside the United States. Um, there are some exceptions, and the exceptions are when the statute itself actually says that this statute applies outside the United States. So, for example, uh, murder says, you know, that it applies outside the United States, and or uh, excuse me, murder of uh, a murder of like government officials or something like that. Um, uh, so that statute says specifically that it applies outside the United States. Um, the terrorism uh, terrorism statutes say that they specifically apply outside the United States. So the the gun charge 924C does not say that. So we argued that it, therefore it can't be applied outside the United States. But the government, I mean, but the the judge found that because the conspiracy part of the conspiracy had occurred in the United States and outside the United States. And because conspiracy does have effect outside the United States, then the gun charge, because it's it's predicated on the conspiracy, um, of necessity also has uh, effect outside the United States. So, I know I, I apologize for this, you know, possibly overly detailed um, explanation of the law here, but the point being that this is why these gun charges were able to stick against us. And th this is why um, we were all facing life in prison as we, you know, went to trial. Now, what I, after the judge denied our pretrial motions and said, no, you know, you know, this, you can be charged outside the United States and uh, conspiracy um, is a crime of violence and, and neutrality act is a crime of violence. And if you did it, then, you know, um, if the, you know, if these actions were actually had actually been taken, if you if these defendants actually did these things, then that would violate these laws. OK, so that's what she said in denying our, our motions. Um, uh, to dismiss uh, uh, the indictment. So when I heard that, and when I read her ruling, I said to myself, okay, well, since I ha since we have five people at least testifying, ready to testify, that we actually did these actions, and since the judge just held that if you actually did these actions, then that violates these laws, therefore, it's like a syllogism, therefore, we're screwed. <laughs> because <laughs> therefore, if we go to trial, that you know, these guys are going to testify that we did these things, and we're all going to prison for life. So, um, my lawyer had been trying to persuade me to plead guilty, and I kept on saying, "I'm not pleading guilty." I was the lead defendant at the time because at that time Ali had not been charged. Ali was really the guy that they were uh, going after, but uh, since they, for whatever reason, made the decision not to charge him at that time, um, uh, and I think the reason they did that is because. What he was accused of doing was merely giving like a 15-minute talk. So I think that they decided they were going to um, not try to charge him then, but rather would wait and see how the case against us proceeded, and if they were successful, then to try to uh, charge him later down the road, which in fact is exactly what they did. So um, I told my lawyers at that point, after our judge denied our pretrial motions, I told them, 
all right, well, I'll consider pleading guilty, um, but I want to make sure that um, my other co-defendants all have um, uh, deals offered to them, and I want us all to plead guilty at the same time. And the reason I wanted that was because I didn't want to um, be put in a position of betraying them in terms of either A, like ducking out of a situation without, you know, um, sticking together or whatever. And then also, um, you know, I obviously didn't want to be put in a position where I was going to have to testify against other people in, in my case. So what happened is that uh, I, I told my lawyer that he said, look, he said, I'm not part of the Save the Paintball 13 committee. Uh, I'm here uh, as your lawyer. I'm not here for their lawyer. And I said, look, if you think that it's in my interest to plead guilty, I'm not going to plead guilty until we all have a chance to sit down and talk about this and they have plea deals offered to them as well. So um, the government agreed to offer all of them, all, offer us what's called the global plea. They, they made plea offers for all of us and gave it to us in a letter. And then the judge ordered us to be able to have a meeting of all the defendants. Um, some of us had been released on bond and some of us were still in jail. I was still in jail. They, they denied my bond. So they, uh, we all had a meeting with the co-defendants and I told them, I gave them like a I don't know if you guys are familiar with game theory, but game theory is like. I think a, you talked about this last time. You had the flow charts. How yeah, flow chart? Right. Like, listen, guys, if they pled yeah, not like, guilty, they'd guys. be screwed, right? Because all the evidence was against yeah. you, right? And right. that's how I think. Yeah, people. that's how guys got life. <laughs> yeah, we have people. We have five people testifying against us, and the, these charges are are gonna, especially the gun charges, are gonna manda mandate that the judge sentences to life. So. Um, in the end, uh, what happened is that one brother, Ibrahim al-Hamdi, agreed uh, to plead guilty. And um, when I heard their argument, see, the problem is that the brothers did not understand um, the situation we were facing. You know, for example, so one of the brothers had just been released on bond. He thought that when the judge released him on bond, that meant that the judge thought he was not guilty and that everything was going his way. You know, and I was like, no, brother, that's not. And they were... the. The, this particular brother had was offered a, fi a five-year plea deal. Well, he went to trial and he got life, you know. And the government offered him originally five years. Another brother, they offered him two. He denied it. He rejected it because he had also been released on bond. And he, he, you know, very understandably was like, "I have nothing to do with this." So, you know, I, all I did was play paintball. So why should I, you know, plead guilty to something that I didn't do? You know, and I'm like. Yeah, you know, I understood his situation, you know, because he, unlike the rest of us, he or many of us, not only the rest of us, unlike many of us, he actually did not do anything. There was there were several people in my who were charged in my case who literally like didn't do anything but go and play paintball. So, um, you know, that he this brother was one of them. So they offered him two. He went to trial, was found guilty, and got eight years, uh, which sounds like a lot maybe to some people, but he, uh, you know, really isn't, you know, in the in the context of things. You know, that was a. And are are these shortened by good behavior too, or? Generally, you have to do eighty five percent of your sentence. The government, you're, there is no parole in the federal uh, system, so you get you are allowed um, fifteen percent of your sentence is deducted off the top for good behavior, and then if you have bad behavior, you lose that um you know that good time a good conduct time that they credit you with from the very beginning when you yeah no so so the brother uh so the brothers uh decided that they would go to trial so what happened with me is um i'd signed a plea agreement saying that i agreed that i would cooperate and that i would um that that cooperation would amount to if if the government wanted me to testify then i would testify and so on and so on and i did sign this 
plea agreement. But in my mind, I said I was saying to myself, there's no way that the government is going to put me on the stand, you know, for them, because um, I'm actually contradictory, contradicting these five people who are who are cooperating with the government. You know, so these five guys, Young Kwan, um, you know, and uh, Mahmoud Khwaja and other guys, these guys were all singing the, um, the government's tune in terms of like, you know, uh, Ali Tamimi told us that, uh, you know, the Taliban, um, Mullah Omar was was had issued a call to the uh, Muslims to all come and defend them. And this was like the story of these guys. And, and that was like not what happened, you know. So I'm like, you know, uh, if the government puts me on the stand, I'm going to say that, that what they're claiming uh, happened did not happen. You know, so um, it turned out that, in fact, the government did not. Uh, try to get me to testify against my co-defendants for that exact reason, because my version of events was uh, op the opposite of what you know the government's uh, uh, witnesses were saying. So they did try. They did put Ibrahim Alhamdi uh, on the stand, but uh, that was kind of a fiasco because Ibrahim um, basically did this. You know, did exactly what I was what I would have done which was to tell the truth and which was to say that it didn't happen the way that, you know, the way that the uh, uh, government witnesses were saying. So it ended up, they ended up trying to, I think, declaring him a hostile witness or something. And it, it, it just didn't go well uh, with Ibrahim. But nevertheless, they, these, um, and again, as I mentioned with, when it comes to um, whether or not the brothers are mad at him or something like that, uh, then we were all in prison together in, in Terre Haute, Indiana, uh, doing very well with one another. So, so if anyone um, wants to know about Ibrahim Alhamdi, they can also contact the community out here in uh, Maryland and Virginia and, and ask about whether the brothers are mad at Ibrahim. Uh, Just so, so we don't lose track of where we're at. So you mentioned Terre Haute. This is after the conviction? You yeah, just fast yeah, forward a little bit, on. right? Yeah, that came along in 2006. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna get, uh, I don't want to get uh, too uh, deep in the weeds on the, the legal situation, other than to say that, you know, as we, um, you know, as uh, the brothers went to trial, uh, two brothers were found not guilty, and uh, the rest of them were found guilty, and the um, many people had already pleaded out, pleaded guilty. So uh, we had the guys who cooperated and testified against them. They pleaded guilty way earlier, um, and they. You know, and then I pleaded guilty. Ibrahim pleaded guilty. So ultimately, in the end, the only people going to trial were um, Masoud Khan, um, Saifullah Chapman, um, uh, Hamad Abdurrahim, uh, and uh, Khalifa uh, uh, Basha, and the um, Sabri Sabri bin Kahla. He uh, was uh, his case was severed, and he went to trial in it uh, uh, in a separate trial. They didn't try him with us. He was indicted with us, but. Uh, they took him off, uh, off our case because his case had almost nothing to do with ours. We just knew him. That was basically why they stuck him with us. So he went to trial on a different, um, uh, you know, in a different trial. So anyway, um, so what happened is that they were sentenced in the way that the judge had to sentence them to. Why? Because these statutes, these gun statutes, mandate that the judge give them a certain uh, sentence and cannot go below that sentence. So for that reason, um, Masoud Khan received uh, life plus, I don't know, 30 years or something crazy. And then um, Saifullah Chapman got 85. That was later reduced to 65. Uh, and Brother Hamad got um, eight years. And then um, the Brother Khalifa was found not guilty. And the Brother um, uh, Sabri in his separate trial was found not guilty, although he was later 
indicted on something else and came to prison <laughs> along with the rest of us, unfortunately. It was just another interesting story. But anyway, uh, so those brothers uh, were found uh, guilty. So I, meanwhile, am sitting in Alexandria jail uh, waiting to be uh, sent off to prison because I, uh, and I was actually waiting to be sentenced. I hadn't been sentenced yet. And then to be sent to jail. Those brothers were all convicted and they came, uh, some of them had were out on bond. When they were convicted, they uh, were forced to uh, uh, go into custody and they brought them into jail. And so we were all, you know, sitting in the jail together. And then, uh, and then they, uh, they sent, off, sent us off to our, our prisons. You know, I was sent to uh, Allenwood uh, Penitentiary, or excuse me, Allenwood uh, Federal Correctional Institute, uh, Institute, which is a medium security prison in Pennsylvania. And then the other brothers were sent to where they were sent to. Uh, unfortunately, Masoud and Saifullah, because they had life sentences, I had a 20-year sentence. sentence. Uh, Masoud and Saif, they got, um, uh, since they had essentially life, uh, they were sent to maximum uh, or high security uh, facilities. I went to a medium because of my sentence was shorter. And uh, that's how the B uh, Bureau of Prisons does it. So those brothers went off uh, to their very difficult situations, and I went to mine, which was le not as difficult as theirs. Those guys went off to Colorado, right? That's where the... No, no uh, uh, Saifullah the... was sent to a place in Kentucky, and Masood was sent to a place in um, down on the border with Kentucky and Virginia. Um, and and they they're all, all supermax prisons? Or? No, those are not supermax. There's only one supermax prison. Those are uh, what's called... Uh, uh, so the Federal Bureau of Prisons has these custody levels. They have minimum, uh, which is a camp. They have uh, low custody, which has a fence around it. They have medium, uh, which is a tougher, it's tougher, it's tougher due to the security and it's tougher due to the kind of people that you have in it. And then you have high security, which is, um, you know, which, which are also known as penitentiaries. And the high security uh, prisons are um, pretty rough, you know, they're, they're pretty rough, and they're, they've got walls around them generally. So the difference here is the high security has a wall around it and very, and very violent. The medium security has, a, has like a double fence and, you know, wire, uh, you know uh, uh, razor wire, and also is, it has some pretty tough, um, you know, characters there, uh, but not as bad as a, a penitentiary. And then uh, you have the low which uh, low securities have fences around them, but the security is much, much more lax, much more lax. And then you have minimums, which don't even have fences around them. So are, are those the, was, the ones for the white-collar criminals? Yeah, white-collar yeah. criminals, exactly. Yeah. So I went to a medium, and the brothers went to a, a step above me, which was the, the, the high security. Uh, but they at this point, none of us were in um, uh, the supermax. That came later, as I'll explain. So when I got to um, when I got to Pennsylvania, I was I was immediately placed into solitary confinement because the prison saw that my my charges were crazy looking terrorism related charges and they decided to uh, put me in the in solitary for a month till they figured out what kind of person I was you know whether I was you know. Um, some kind of lunatic extremist, whatever, as their paperwork seemed to show that I was. And by the way, let me point out that during this whole time uh, in the county jail in Alexandria, while I was fighting my case, my relationship with my wife was deeply, deeply uh, damaged because, you know, we went, first of all, we were fighting constantly because we were fighting about the logistics of what are we, you know, 
what are we going to do? How are we going to, you know, uh, you know, or how are we going to move forward? How are we going to live, you know, live with this marriage? And, and, and not only that, I was just like on edge all the time. She's on edge all the time because she's, she's got four kids and she's, you know, in her early twenties, you know, and she was, she was, uh, you know, she's, she's from Bosnia. She doesn't have any family here, you know, so we, we just, we're under so much stress. And, um, so this really, really hurt our marriage a lot. And then Can we assume to- that things were like pretty good before you were arrested. Uh, you know, I was not the perfect husband, you know, let me just put it that way, you know, but, uh, we were, you know, we were, we were together, we had four kids and we were, um, you know, we, we, uh, we, inshallah, I don't, I think we would have worked it out, you know, um, we, we didn't have, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I, I like I say, it, it, I was not the perfect husband. But, but year one was when you, the strain started happening or? Yeah, yeah, it was really, I mean, we were already, you know, you know, working through our issues and stuff like that. But when I got arrested, then that was really, you know, like I say, it was just all the stress of that. And um, I really recommend the movie if you guys want to know how that is. There's a movie called Felony. There's a couple movies called Felony, but this one's Felony. Is, I got Val, Val Kilmer in it. Mm. And um, it really, it's a, it's like an indie type movie about um, about a guy who goes to prison. It's really, it's the, be- it's the best movie I've seen that really shows h- how that, dynamic is with the wife and the family and how that is um strained you know when someone goes to prison but anyway so uh then when i got sent off to pennsylvania and i'm in the hole you know i'm in i'm in solitary for a month so now i I can't um talk to her on the phone i can't she can't visit me um you know it was very very difficult i i mean i was so depressed at in in alexandria jail because i of this i was cut off from my family that you know, I went through a period where I couldn't even. The only reason I would get out of my bed at all was to eat and pray. Those were the only two things. You know, only only read or maybe take a shower, use a bathroom or something. But other than that, I would just lay in bed, you know, sleeping and just being depressed. So when I get sent off to Pennsylvania, you know, that was obviously even worse. And you know, so I'm sitting there uh, trying to figure out, you know, this new life. You know, basically what it is is like this is your life now. You know, you know, forget about that. Uh, you know, forget about the street forget about freedom forget about the life that you had that's that life is over you know and um the more you think you know as long as you know when you think about it the more you think about it the more you dwell on it the more you uh worry about it the more you continue your your head your mind is still on um you know out in the free world the harder your prison time is going to be you know so that's what everyone tells you when you first come in and it sounds crazy and it sounds harsh or you might say oh yeah yeah i know i know but you know it's really true, you know, and it took me a, it took me a while before I finally wrapped my head around the fact that I needed to um, I needed to deal with my day to day situation. And I, I, I'm, I can't micromanage my wife anymore. You know, I can't I can't be a husband anymore. I can't make those decisions anymore. I can't you know, I, I, I can't write checks to her. I can't um, you know, I can't uh, be with her physically. You know, I don't have that standing anymore. And so what what it really does is it actually emasculates you. You know, it makes it turns you into uh, less than a man, really, you know, um, and in many ways, because you're you're no longer able to function as a husband. Um, You're just you basically become a ghost. You know, you become a if you guys have ever seen the movie Sixth Sense, you know, where, yeah, yeah, where uh, Bruce Willis is following his, you know, he's a ghost and he's following his wife around and he's trying to have an impact in her life. And the only thing that he can really do is like make little noises that she might hear and she'll look around and say, what was that? You know, and, um, you know, that's what, 
what it's like, you know. Mm. And, you know, so um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote in his book when he was, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a, a Russian who, uh, you know, was sent to the, the gulag, the, the work camps in Stalinist Russia. And so he uh, he uh, talks about how when he was in the, these work um, prisons in Siberia, you know, he would uh, write letters back to his wife and kids and stuff. And he said it was like taking a rock and throwing it into a pond and watching it, you know, sink and disappear and you never see anything from it again, you know. And that's exactly what this uh, was like. And actually, believe it or not, this is the most insane thing. Okay, so for what, if you can imagine, like, okay, other everyone's everyone's time is difficult when they first come to prison. But for me, because I had this uh, case, it was deemed to be a terrorist inmate. That's how the Bureau of Prisons uh, classified me. They uh, gave me only one 15-minute phone call a month. So. The phone system there works. It's like a computerized phone system. You get on the phone and you punch in your pack, your your personal access code or whatever, what they call pack number, or like a pin number basically. And you punch that in, and then it'll. Um, you're you're allowed. The system allows you 300 minutes a month, and um, they and the system can be like for everyone's personal account. It can be adjusted, you know. So, um, you know, so. Um, where you can be blocked altogether. So for me, uh, they made it so that I was only allowed 15 minutes, a one 15 minute phone call a month. And so I'm in Pennsylvania, you know what I mean? I, I have one 15 minute phone call a month. I have four kids, a wife and two parents, you know, so how am I going to divide 15 minutes between all these people, you know, and you know, how am I going to, um, and then as far as visits, yeah, I was, alhamdulillah, I was able to get visits. So there's a visiting room and, the family comes up and you you all sit like around a like a little coffee table type of thing and and talk and you can hug one another and stuff like that. But I'm in Pennsylvania, so my um, my kids are in Virginia, so it was very hard for them. My wife didn't even know how to drive at that point, you know, um, you know, not because I was someone accused me. Of, I'm not going to say who it was. So one of these uh, brothers accused me of uh, saying of that I was a Salafi and that I was not allowing my wife to drive because I was influenced by the Saudis or so. It's not like that at all. I was, I was actually in the process of trying to teach my wife how to drive when I was arrested, you know. It was just we had never gotten really around to it, and she wasn't that, you know. It just wasn't a thing, you know, that we really worried about. And so, um, Well, the driver's exam is hard for a lot of immigrants right there that it's in a different language and – that's some... Oh, exactly. She was. She was. Uh, you know, she hadn't even been speaking English that long. So it was. It was sort of a one of those mountains to, to climb over that we just really had never really gotten around to doing. And so now, um, you know, she had to uh, find someone to drive her up there, and it was uh, very, very difficult. You know. And then when when we when I I would see her, you know, of course everything's weird. You know, it's it's just weird. You know, because we're you know we know that we're having a rough time. You know. And then, um, so after their first visit, um, I'm going along to the uh, chow hall. Uh, they they released me from uh, solitary, uh, you know. So I'm 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 going along the walk to the chow hall, and when, right before I get to the chow hall, there's this big guard who's the cat. He turned out to be the captain, who's who's like in charge of security for the prison, and he's a big like pro wrestler looking type of guy. And he says, uh, he says, hey Reuter. I say, uh, yeah. He says, uh, he says. Uh, your wife is never going to visit you again for the next 20 years of your sentence. 
And I said, well, why is that? He says, he says, weren't you in Alexandria jail? And I said, yeah. He says, uh, well, your wife violated the regulations at Alexandria jail, and she took a photograph of you in the visiting room. Your wife is never going to visit you again. So I was like, what are you talking about? You know? And he's like, uh, well, we got a call from some high-level people who say that that's what happened. I was like, man, look, man, I, I said, I, let me let, let me find out what's what that's about. OK, so I go and I ask, I tell my wife about it, I wrote to her and I said, this is what these people are saying here. And they're saying you're banned from coming up to see me because you took a photograph of me or something in the visit in the visiting room at Alexandria Jail. So what are the, it could go to Alexandria Jail and ask them to give you a letter saying that that never happened. So what she did was she went and got a letter from Alexandria Jail and they wrote a letter saying the your you know, this, uh, woman was never uh, charged or never accused of, of, of anything inappropriate in, in when she was visiting her husband. So she took that letter and was and, and also like people from the community started calling at that time. Like I had a lot of people from the community that were still kind of like interested in my case and stuff. So they were calling up to the jail. My, my parents were calling up. So anyway, as I'm walking along to, to go to the recreation yard about you know, a week later, and the thing still wasn't resolved as far as I know, um, I, see, <laughs> I see the guy again. Hey, Royer. Uh, yeah, he says, you need, to, you need to tell your people to quit calling the warden and bothering the warden and calling me and bothering me. And I was like, well, I can't call them because you guys only allow me to have one 15-minute phone call a month. So I can't call them and tell them anything. He's like, well, well. Well, you need to tell them or write to them or something because they're bothering us, you know. And he's like, oh, yeah, so your wife can visit you now. Uh, we got it cleared up. So here's what the whole thing was about, right? The whole thing was that while I was in the county jail in Alexandria, um, one of the brothers from the community who was coming up to visit me took a picture of me with a, a camera phone. And that was a trip to me because I had never seen a, cam uh, a phone with a camera before. And, um, you know, I'd heard about it, but I hadn't seen one. So he took, he took a picture of me and then someone had started like a free ismailroyer.com or .org or something website. And they put that uh, photograph on the website. Well, the government had become aware of this website and it was kind of salty about it as the kids say. And they contacted the uh, federal Bureau of prisons and told them, uh, that my wife had taken this picture, but my wife had not taken the picture. And um, anyway, so this was just one of those things that uh, I, the reason I went into this whole story is to show that, you know, you know, these kind of things happen and you're kind of like at, at people's mercy and it's very difficult to resolve them, um, you know, but now, OK, so my wife is being allowed to visit me now. But now check this out. OK, so what happens is all of a sudden I'm not getting any letters from my wife and she's not getting any letters from me. And. I didn't know that she's not getting letters from me. All I knew was, knew was that I wasn't getting any letters from her. And all she knew was that she wasn't getting letters from me. But she, we, we did not know that you know, the other was experiencing the same situation. We just thought that we're writing letters and the other is not responding. Um, and at the time, I was, uh, I was banned from making phone calls altogether. Oh, and by the way, okay, so th this is a, a real... Uh, you know, I, I, I got ahead of myself a little bit. What happened is that um, there was a riot at the prison. And when the riot happened, we were locked in. Uh, it was between the Hispanics and the uh, D.C. Uh, blacks. So we, we were locked down for like a week or something like that. And we, if we come out and when we come out, 
they tell us, okay, everyone, you're allowed to um, use the phone, but you can only make five-minute phone calls. So I said, okay, well, let me make a five-minute phone call. And then I made another five-minute phone call, and, I it, and then I made another five-minute phone call. So I was like, hey, maybe they've actually, like, in adjusting the, 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 the phone calls for everyone, maybe they've, like, uh, allowed me and taken that block off my phone and now allowed me to make five-minute phone calls. So it turned out that that was the case. There was some sort of glitch when they readjusted everyone's phone uh, uh, schedule. It wound up uh, taking the block off of my phone, and now I was able to make more than 15 minutes of calls. So I, I think I made about 25 minutes of calls total. I think I called like, you know, I made like five five-minute phone calls. Well, they charged me with a, 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 a phone a phone abuse violation. The BOP has a uh, um, has a uh, what do you call it like a uh, disciplinary code. So one of the violations that you can violate is um, a serious phone abuse. So they charged me with serious phone abuse for um, for going over my block or something. And I was my argument was you guys are the one that took the block off me. I mean I'm not I don't why am I obligated to like you know police my my uh, you know block myself you know if you take the phone block off me and then i should be allowed to use a phone you know that's your fault and there they didn't see it that way of course and so as punishment they took 30 days of good time away which meant i had to do another 30 days in prison off the end of my sentence they put me in the hole for a month they took my all my phone calls the whole is solitary they, yes yeah okay. they took my phone calls for for a month which anyway was only 15 or excuse me six months which, which anyway was only 15 minutes a month anyway, and they took my visits for six months. So I'm in the hole. I got no visits coming for the next six months. I got no phone calls for the next six months. Um, all I've got is letters. So I'm writing to my wife, and she's not responding to me. So my dad writes me a letter, and I'm, and I'm in the hole, by the way. I'm in solitary. Okay, so my wife's not responding to my letters. So my, wife, my dad writes to me, and he says, hey, to know why you're not answering her letters. And I'm like, what letters? I'm not getting your letters from her. I'm writing to her. And so we determined that way through my dad, we determined that uh, the BOP, the, the prison was confiscating all the letters from me and all the letters from her. So what the heck is going on? So I finally get out of the hole. I still am not allowed to have visits or phone calls, so I can't communicate with her. Um, but what I do is I tell my dad, listen, do this. Take, uh, um, uh, go, to the, uh, go to the post office, have... Um, send me a letter, but send it return receipt so that when it comes to the prison, whoever receives it at the prison has to sign, um, you know, the receipt and then send me, I said, tell, uh, I said, have her give the receipt to you and you send me a copy of the, of the receipt. So in that way, I would be able to prove that her letters were coming to the prison, but that they were not giving them to me. So because this whole time I've been going to the uh, captain and I've been going to the warden and saying, um, hey, what's going on with my letters? And they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. So I, I wrote like a what's called a grievance. Uh, it's like a formal complaint. And I said, you guys are taking my letters. And they responded. And they're like, you claim that we're taking your letters. We don't know what you're talking about. So anyway, my dad sends me this copy of this receipt, okay, showing that um, this uh, security guy in the mailroom and out at the prison had received a letter from my wife. And uh, it had a signature. So I took that receipt and I made a bunch of copies of it and stuck them everywhere. And then I went up to the um, warden and I said, warden, look at this. Here's this guy here. This is this guy here works in the mailroom. OK. And he signed this saying that he received it. Why did I not receive this letter from my wife? How is it? Why is it at the prison? But I didn't get it. 
And for that matter, where's the rest of her letters from me? And for that matter, where's my letters to her? And they're like, well, we don't know what you're talking about. So they're like, that thing that you got there, we don't, you know, we, we just, we don't know, you know, we just don't know. So I, what I, it was really insane. It was like, like Kafkaesque, you know, like a Kafka novel. So I wound up, you know, the, the grievance system that they ha have in the Bureau of Prisons has three levels. First, you complain at the warden's level in writing. And if they deny it, you complain to the regional office because the Bureau of Prisons has different regional offices. And if they deny you, then you complain to the central um, office, which is in D.C., uh, which I, by the way, I accidentally went to the other day, just totally um, on accident. I was trying to go somewhere else, and I, I wound up like opening you know, like the door, and it was actually the Federal Bureau of Prisons, you know, headquarters in, <laughs> in D.C. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the place I was always writing to and complaining, you know. But anyway, uh, so um, when I got to the central office level, they responded back and said, we we looked into this, we talked to the warden. They say there's nothing to your complaints. They don't know what you're talking about. We don't know what you're talking about. Your cases, <clears throat> your 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 complaint is rejected. So, you know, it was like really insane. Now, here's the thing. Right after, like a day after I got that rejection notice from the uh, central office, I at mail call, because what, what they do is like they have a mail call where the, um, the, the, the correctional officer hands out the mail for the day. He calls Royer. So, you know, and everyone's standing around the table while he's throwing the letters on the table. So he calls me. He calls my name and he throws on the table a stack of letters and wrapped up in a rubber band all from my wife. And the stack of letters is going like the dates on the postmarks are going back like six months. And then the most recent one was like, you know, the ones that she'd been sending with, the, um, you know, with the return receipt on them. So I'm looking at the stack of letters. I'm like, what the? And I said to see, where'd this come from? The officer, where'd this come from? He says, I don't know. It just came from the mailroom. It was in the mailbag. So I'm like, what is What the heck is going on? So I went and I talked to the warden. I said, what is this? You know, oh, and my wife told me I now at this point, six months have gone by. I got my phone calls back. So I call my wife, still only 15 minutes a month, but anyway, I call her and I say, hey, what uh, did you, I said, you know what, I just got all your letters. And she says, I just got all your letters today. And a big, she said, I got, I opened the mailbox and there's like 10 letters from you. And I'm like, oh man, what the heck? So I go to the warden and I say, what is going on? Why were you guys confiscating all this mail between, here's all the letters that, you know, so you see that I, I was, I wasn't crazy. What was going on? She says, well, what it is is that you were writing uh, some kind of Arabic at the top of your letters. And we didn't know what that was, and uh, we sent them off to be translated. Oh, my God. And Yeah, and what I was writing was Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim at the top of the, letter, top of the letters. So I said, why don't you guys just tell me, first of all, why don't you tell me that to write in English only and that if I write anything in Arabic, it's, the letters are going to be confiscated until they can be translated? And she's like, uh, that, those are security procedures. You're, you're not, you know, we're not allowed to tell you about those things. So it turned out, actually, I found out later that the, they had a Bo my, Now my wife was writing to me in Bosnia because she didn't speak English well enough to write letters in in um, English, and I I speak and read Bosnian. So she would write to me in Bosnian. I would write to her in English. So they were confiscating her letters because her letters were in Bosnian. And the, um, they had a contractor, the Bureau of Prisons had a contractor in Florida who um, was translating um, stuff for every Bosnian speaker in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, which is like 250,000 people. This, this one contractor in Florida had like, you know, uh, the, the contract to translate all Croatian, Serbian, Bosnian letters for the whole Bureau of Prisons. So my stuff, you know, my wife's letters to me were all in this, this queue. 
So anyway, um, that was the situation. So we learned from that that we were going to write to each other only in English. But the thing is that at this point, you have to understand that months have gone by where I have not spoken to my wife. She, I have not gotten a visit from her, and I have not gotten a letter from her. And meanwhile, I've got, I'm getting reports that there are brothers at the mosque who are all over her. Oh, we got you. Oh we'll take care of you. You want us to teach the kids Quran? You want us to te- take the kids to the masjid? We got that. You want us to drive? You, you want us to, oh, you know, and you know, if it's, I, I, it's a really terrible situation about Ismail. And, you know, have you thought about what you're going to do? And, you know, well, we just want you to know that, you know, we're here for you. You know, whatever decision you want to make, you know, if you want to stay with them. You want, so, you know, these kind of, you know, things are going in her ear. And she's young and, um, you know, and she's in a very, very, very difficult situation. And she, you know, we were already having a lot of, um, you know, a lot of problems. And um, so, so our marriage is uh, deteriorating at this point, you know, and uh, so uh, she asked me for a divorce and we went through the the three uh, month thing. We actually like, you know, it, it wasn't right away, you know, it was like. Um, you know, a month would go by and then she would say, revoke that. I, I don't want to, I decided I didn't want a divorce, you know? And so we went back and forth like that for a while. Anyway, uh, let me shift, uh, right now to what's going on in prison. Okay. So what's going on in prison is that I come to find that Islam in prison is essentially a racial gang. Okay. Islam in prison. And by the way, I'm, I know I'm going to get, if I got a lot of complaints about anyone, I'm going to get a lot of complaints from people on this, but let me just, <laughs> let me just be straightforward with you and with all the listeners, which is that the usul, the default is that Islam is uh, seen as um, a racist gang. Okay. So I'm not talking about nation of Islam. I'm talking about Sunni Islam. Okay. Who sees it that way? Well, first and foremost, the people who see that, see it that way, are the non-Muslims. Non-Muslims view um, Sunni Muslims as, um, look, you got to understand that prison is a very different place than the real world, okay? Prison is segregated into, um, segregated by race, and it's also segregated by geography. So you've got people, especially federal prison. So in federal prison, you've got um, people from all over the United States, but mainly, mainly from D.C., and also from uh, 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 New York, Philadelphia, depending on where you are in the in the country, you've got Native Americans, a lot of Native Americans. You've got a um, for various legal reasons because when they, when they get in trouble on their reservations, they get sent to federal prison um, instead of local jails and local prisons, uh, state prison. They come to federal prison. So we've got there's a big Native American population. There's a big um, popula- a Hispanic population. And um, uh, there's also uh, uh, some some whites, uh, not too many, but they're but they're there. So the white guys um, have figured out that their way of um, not being victimized is to be um, insanely over the top violent, like psychopathic violent. Um, which is uh, you know that's that was that was their way of. Um, you know, essentially coping with, um, I think, being like a minority um, in um, in prison. So you've got these white guys who are 
Uh, now, I'm not talking about all of them. Not all of them are like that, but the white gangs are like that, and like the Aryan Brotherhood, which really doesn't exist in any mediums, but there's they've got hangers-on and admirers and stuff like that. Um, so I'm dealing with white guys who think that I'm a race traitor because I'm a Muslim, and I'm trying to explain to them, look, I am not um, like trying to be uh, black. You know, I, I am who I am. I'm, I'm you know – I, I am perfectly happy and pleased with the way God made me, you know, but I'm I'm not trying to be something I'm not. It's just that my religion is just like some people are Buddhist or some people are whatever, you know, Catholic or something. I'm, I'm Muslim. That's what my religion is. But the thing about it is it's not that simple because um, – and picture, picture yourself here, okay? You come to prison. Now, federal every federal prison is built the same way, whether these are pr- prisons are built – you know, last week or whether they were built in the 40s. And that is that there's two entrances in the chow hall, okay? The chow hall has two entrances, one on the left and one on the right. And they're cafeteria style so that like the, the, the two lines, uh, when you're going down the line along the sides of the, the chow hall uh, room, big room, here you go. Like, so there's a line going in the left door and a line in the right door. And these lines go along the, the wall. And then you uh, and then when you hit the um, uh, the back where they serve the food, then now you turn, um, you know, you make a right angle and you go along and they they uh, they give you your uh, serve the food as you can, you know, if you can like a counter. It's like a it's like a cafeteria counter and they uh, serve your food and then they give you the food and then you um, you leave. So there's these two streams coming, one on the right, one on the left, um, make right angles and then meet in the middle and then come out. So the uh, line on the left is the line for blacks. The line on the right is the line for whites and Hispanics, okay? So I'm going to the chow hall, and, you know, when I got to, when I got to my housing unit, when I first got, you know, got out of solitary confinement, um, you know, when I first got to the prison, I come out, and, you know, uh, the Muslims were automatically there waiting for me. They're like, yeah, we heard there was a uh, white brother in, uh, in the hole. It was just, you know, uh, uh, we were waiting for you. We knew you were, you know, everyone knows everything there. You know, the, the, the laundry, people who work in laundry, they already know who I am and where I'm going because they've, they've received a list of who they need to make, uh, who they need to issue clothes to. So my clothes are already waiting for me for when I come out of the hole and they already know what unit I'm going to. So the guys who work in laundry go and say to the Muslims, hey, you know, you got a brother coming um, into your uh, uh, into your unit. And they're like, oh, yeah, really? What's his name? Oh, OK, where's he from? Oh, he's from Virginia. Oh, yeah, yeah. They had already knew. They were like, oh, yeah, well, we read in the Muslim link about you. You know, we uh, you know, we get the Muslim link here. We uh, we read about your case and we saw that you were coming. So they were already waiting for me for when I got to the um, to the housing unit. And these bro- there's uh, African-American brothers and um, a, uh, a Syrian brother. OK, so I wasn't looking at it as anything racial. And by the way, neither were these brothers. OK, so not I'm going to explain more what I mean by the, the racial uh, component of it. OK, so um, so these brothers who I'm with, they're not like on any type of racial time either. OK, so I'm just like we were talking about in the beginning about how when you meet someone and you just feel like you're on the same page and stuff like this, these are brothers who I feel like, you know, I'm on the same page with them. These are people who are serious about the Dean. They're interested in the religion and, uh, you know, they're, they're greeting me and with, you know, with open arms, that type of stuff. Alhamdulillah, I was really happy. I was, I felt like, you know, I felt like a really, you know, it sucked to be in prison, but I felt like I'm with, you know, some, some good brothers here. So now we go off to the chow hall. I don't know anything about how this works, the, you know, the politics of it. So I'm going with them, and we go to the uh, to the line on the left. Why? Because I'm just walking with them, you know. 
and they're, they're going through the, the, line, the, uh, the left line. And I look over and I notice that people are looking at me kind of weird because I'm white and I'm in the black line. And I didn't – no one told me this was the black line, but I look and I see that everyone in this line is black except me. And I'm looking over and I see everyone in that line over there is, is white and Hispanic and, and some people over there are kind of taking notice of the fact that I'm over in this other line. What about the Syrian that's, brother? Was he in line with you? Yeah, the Syrian brother was in the line with me. So that's the um, – and that's kind of weird too for them because a lot of foreign Muslims – um, sometimes you know they get caught up in this thing of, you know, do they want to be considered black or do they not? And that has actually consequences. You know, it's 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 not a racist thing. It's just like, it's just that um, choices you make as to what line you get in have consequences down the road. You know, it's not like oh I don't want to be with in a line with blacks or I don't want to be in a line with white. You know, it's not I, yeah I don't want to be in a line with whites because I'm trying to be black or something like that or I don't want to be in a line with you know, I mean, it's it's not those cal- kind of calculations. The calculations are what um, what effect is this going to have on my relationships with other inmates in prison? You know, and that's a very important thing. Because if I had, imagine this: if I had gone with these brothers to the chow hall, and I look around and I see that over there is the line with the white guys and the Hispanics, and they're looking at me kind of weird, and I tell them, "Hey guys, no offense, but I'm gonna go over there and get in that line over there." You know, I mean, you know how it is, guys. You know what I'm saying? You, you feel me, right? You know, you know, you know, it'd be kind of weird for me to be in line in, in this line over here. Well, they're gonna get offended at that. You know, what I mean, like, they would have told me, man, don't worry about all that, man. Just you're, you're with us. We go in this line here. You know, um, you know, just just go with us. So that's what they would have said. You know what I mean? But at the same time, these white dudes over here are looking at me like, what the hell? Oh, so we got one of these. Uh, you know, we got one of these on our hands now. You know what I mean? So that's automatically the bag I'm in, right? So then I come into the chow hall, and guess what? There's the left side of the chow hall is black, and the right side of the chow hall is where the whites and Hispanics sit. Okay. So now, where am I gonna uh, am I gonna sit with the Muslims? The Muslims have a table. You know, everyone's got a table, by the way. So as I mentioned to you, that like the things are segregated by race, and they're also segregated by geography, and they're segregated by gang. So you got a table that is the Sunni Muslim table. You got a table that is the Nation of Islam table. You got a table that's more Science Temple of America. You got a table that's DC. You got a table that's Philadelphia, non-Muslim Philadelphia, but sometimes the Muslims from Philadelphia sit there. And then you got um, Baltimore table. You got New York table. You got Ohio table. This is all black. Okay, on the black side. Over on the Hispanic side and white side, you got the um, MS-13 table. You got the Paisa table. You got the Border Brothers table. You got the Aztecas table. You got the um, uh, as for the white guys. You got the white guys from Ohio. You got the white white guys from. Uh, you got the certain gangs. You know, so this this is this. You could map this chow, these chow halls out. Are there Nazis and, too? Uh, yeah, there are Nazis, and uh, there's a gang actually called the Nazi Lowriders. You got the uh, uh, Aryan Resistance Movement. You got uh, you know. I mean, it's just it just yeah. goes on and on and on. So you cannot mess up and sit at the wrong table. Okay, so, you know, they'll, they'll tell you to leave. I mean, they're not going to spaz out on you, but they'll, they'll tell you leave, man. Hey, man, you know, you, you, you'll, you're, you'll be out of pocket, you know. So I go and I like, where am I, first of all, where am I going to sit? If I go and I sit with the white guys, I got to sit with the right white guys. I got to sit with maybe like the independent guys. That's realistically where I would have sat. I would have had to sit with the independent guys. Those independent guys are going to want to, uh, they want to see my, pre-sentence report, which is the report that the um, probation office issues to the judge 
which tells them what my charges are and whether I cooperated and so on and so on. They want to know what my charges are, who who my co-defendants are. Did I cooperate with the government? Did I get a time cut because I cooperated with the government and so on and so on? They want to see all that stuff if I'm going to sit at their table. And, and my sitting at their table is not just me sitting at their table. That means also that's who I'm going to work out with. That's who I'm going to um, – hang out with. I can't, if I, if I, someone had advised me um, while I was in the county jail, getting ready to go to federal prison, they said, look, you're going to need to um, get with those white dudes and tell them right when you get off the bus, go out there and talk, right when you hit the yard, go and tell them, hey, listen, this is my situation. I'm a Muslim. That's my religion. But I'm not with like the Muslims in, in prison in terms of I'm not like trying to be black. I'm not, that's, I'm not part of their shenanigans. I'm not going to get involved in that stuff. You know, um, I'm just a white dude who's a Muslim. Well, if I'd have done that and, and possibly that would have, that that's one way to do it, you know, to be honest, you know what I'm saying? But I didn't do it. You know, I didn't do that because when I got off the bus, the first people to meet me, um, they were brothers who welcomed me with open arms in the same kind of loving manner that you would get from any if uh, from my, if i met you guys you know what i mean right. when, when i met you for the first time that's how they treated me so with that it doesn't even make any sense that i would go over for with these with these dudes but at the same time right so here's this um riot that jumps off the riot jumps off and the the muslims are are uh you know to be honest first of all not only are they seen as a black group because they are all black actually except for a few white guys who are trying to be black, frankly, you know what I'm saying? And also like a few Arabs and stuff, you know what I'm saying? But, but, you know, mainly they're seen as a black gang. So, so if anything happens where, you know, there, every prison is about alliances. Okay. So who are the, who are the Muslims aligned with? The Muslims are aligned with New York, DC blacks, New York blacks, Philadelphia blacks. That's who they're aligned with. Just, it's just how it happens. You know why? Because a lot of these guys are from New York and Philly and so on and so on. So they're, they got homies. And some people, their, let's say, like their identity of being Muslim is sort of like not fully Muslim. In other words, they're like they got one foot over here and one foot over here. You know, so a lot of people are really, frankly, just being Muslim because that's it's like uh, they get benefits from it, you know, and they're not really committed to being Muslim or if they maybe they're like halfway committed, but not really, you know, and so on. So those dudes really, frankly, are the majority of Muslims in prison. I heard the food is better for the Muslims. Is that true? No, no, not, not really. Not really. It's the food's the same for everyone. So, so, these, so, so now, man, you know, I have found myself in a situation where I am somehow or another committed to being when, 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 when stuff goes down, I'm now committed to like the black side, you know? So I don't want to be. I mean, like, wh why should I? I don't care about that. I, why, why, I don't have any beef with Hispanics. You know what I'm saying? I don't have any beef with white dudes. Why should I be? But I am. That's now, now that's the situation. You know what I'm saying? So that's what I have to deal with. And that's what I was dealing with at Allenwood. Okay, so, so you, know, um, you know, anyway, man. So uh, um, crazy situation happens is that the imam... Uh, why, who is, uh, so the prison, you know, every group has like a leader. So the leader of the Muslims is the imam. And, um, you know, other groups, they call him the shot caller. Well, our shot caller is the imam. So the imam uh, is someone who really, and this actually usually tends to be the case. In prison, um, the, the, the serious practicing Muslims tend, tend to rise to the top, usually. Not always. They tend to the rise, rise to the top of leadership 
in um, you know in prison. So uh, the 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 shura, the majlis, and the imam were in Allenwood were people who really actually mainly cared about the religion and and actually not being. Uh, racial at all, but in fact being, you know, like real Muslims. That's what they cared about. And they cared about uh, studying and learning Islam. And so they, they were, you know, they used to have, we used to have classes and stuff like that. Well, the imam asks me to do the khutbahs. So he, he, uh, once, a month, once a month. He's doing the khutbahs uh, three times a month. And he asked me to do them once a month because I knew the khutbah al haja and I knew, um, you know, alhamdulillah, something about the deen and so on and so on. So he asked me to do the khutbahs. So I started doing the khutbahs. Well, uh, once a month. Well, what happens is that um, uh, there is this riot between the uh, Mexicans and the blacks. We're locked down. We come out, and the D.C. guys are mad, and the rest of the um, the African-American groups are mad at the Muslims because the Muslims, under our brilliant imam, uh, chose to stay neutral in the whole situation. So the black guys are like, hey, why did you um, Muslims stay neutral? You know, when we were being attacked by these Mexicans and by these uh, whites, what, why did you stay neutral in this situation? And so our imam tells them, look, the, if we were to be like fully like you allied with you guys, then we would be dragged into every situation that you guys get yourselves into. And every, um, it seems like every six months you guys are riding with Mexicans. So we don't want to be a part of that. You know, and the imam told them, but we will, uh, uh, unite with you or ally with you if you promise to make us the ones who communicate with the Mexicans on your behalf. And you promise that if you guys get into any kind of situation without asking us first, then you're on your own. We're not going to have anything to do with that. That's your problem. So actually, because the Muslims there, and this is near Philadelphia, this is in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, so many, there's so many Muslims there and so many Muslims from Philadelphia in prison that we had, the Muslims had like, you know, one of the biggest groups, if not the biggest groups, uh, black groups on, um, on the compound. So the Muslims decide, um, the our imam decides to go with that, and those guys agreed with it. So what happens is, unbeknownst to them, our imam was actually really friendly with the leader of the Mexicans. So he goes over to the leader of the Mexicans and he says, yeah, I finally got these dudes over here under control. And so um, by doing that, he actually brings peace to this um, prison that had not been, you know, peaceful for a long time. So the imam, the Mexican leader start talking and um, the Mexican leader says, well, you know what, now, as long as we're, um, you know, on good terms here, we wanted to bring to your attention that we're having a lot of problems here with this prison because they're not giving us any education. We're, we're 50% of this uh, population. They're not giving us any educational materials in Spanish. They, they don't, you know, they're, uh, they're discriminating against us in this way and that way and the other way. And then the imam's like, well, yeah, we got problems over here. We, we, you know, people have been grumbling because they don't have a dentist and da, 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 da. So, you know, I don't know how, you know, this probably wasn't too wise, but, you know, somehow or another they conclude that being united now, they're going to take a stand against the prison authorities over certain things that the prison authorities were doing. So they all conclude that they're going to have – that we're going to have a hunger strike. We're going to have a food strike and no one's going to go to the chow hall on a certain day, like on Monday or whatever, the upcoming Monday. It was going to – everyone was going to boycott the chow hall as a demonstration of you know there being um, uh, you know, uh, these – uh, conditions of confinement that were harsh against us and stuff like that. So they write their list of demands in English and in Spanish, and they it's clear that from the demands that some of these demands are coming from the Hispanics and some of them are coming from the blacks. And this was like 
crazy for the institution because they're like, oh, man, what? These guys were always fighting. Now they've got, like, combined demands and stuff. And so they panicked and they locked everything down. This is like well before the Monday that was supposed to be the, the everyone, you know, uh, stay, you know, staying out of the chow hall. They locked us down. And the imam was my uh, cellmate because when you have you're in, you're, in, uh, you're in a cell, you have a cellmate. OK, so the imam is my cellmate. So they come and they uh, take every pull, everyone one by one out of their cells. And the prison like intelligence people are asking what is going on? Who is organizing this? And so they, everyone says, like, or I don't know about everyone, but someone is telling them it's the imam. It's the imam and the head of the uh, Mexicans. They're organizing it. So they come and they take the imam out of my cell and they lock him up. They put him in the hole. And then they let us out like a, a few days later and they, they do like an announcement and say, look, we're going um, to give you guys some material, educational materials in Spanish. We're going to hire some new dentists. And by the way, um, the leaders of these groups are all going, uh, being shipped to other prisons. <laughs> so they, so the imam goes to the, goes to the hole. Well, so when they, when they release us from our, uh, our cells, we come out and the Muslims, we kind of group up and convene all the groups are, are all the different, you know, racial and gang groups and stuff are, are convening. So the Muslims get together, us, me and the, 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 um, Majlis Ashura, uh, we all get together and we're like, you know, what happened to the imam? They're like, man, they, they came and they took him out. They locked him up. He's in the hole. So they're like, well, who's the leader? And I said, when they took him out, they told me to say that so-and-so was, he told me to tell you guys that so-and-so is the new imam. So it was, it was a brother, you know. So the brother's like, well, I don't want to be the imam. And I said, well, man, that's too bad because the imam said that you're supposed to be the imam. He's like, well, I don't want to be the imam. So we have no leadership. And now here comes Jumar. I'm the only one who knows how to do khutbahs. So I start doing the khutbahs. I do the khutbah that Friday. I do the Friday, khutbah the next Friday. I was on the message of Shura, so I had some, like, you know, standing. But I'm the only white dude, really, in the community. There was a couple others, but, I mean, I was the only, you know, re, you know, re, you know guy who, who had any kind of, like, respect or anything. And uh, so I do a khutbah on, I said, who – Really loves Allah, and I said I mentioned the the, the test of if uh, uh, say if you love say if you love Allah, then follow me. So I mentioned the ayah that where Allah says that uh, the test if someone really loves Allah is whether or not he follows the Sunnah. And I said you got this guy. I, I'm not. I told. I said on the the minbar, I said I'm not going to mention any names, but there is there is a certain brother who during Ramadan was talking about how he was about to get out of prison, and when he gets back to Baltimore, he's going to sell heroin, and he's going to do this, and he's bragging about this in Ramadan as we're about to break our fast. I said, so can this person, is this a person who really loves her, uh, Allah? You know, can, can he really be someone, because this is not following the prophet, and so on and so on, right? So this is the khutbah I do, okay? Well, this guy, okay, what he does is he goes and starts organizing an insurrection against me. And he's like a worth team Muhammad guy, so he's started he's organizing it on racial grounds. He's going around saying, Man, this slave master, we got this slave master up here, you know, telling us what to do and you know and um you know, I mean it was just absolutely it started getting really crazy. Wait, the story so, was about him though, right? You you Yeah. That yeah, well, the story was about him. Oh, okay. The story was about him. It was it was a very bad decision on my part to to, to do that, but I didn't <laughs> mention his I, I didn't mention his I mean look, I learned Hey, the, the rule for the wise uh Never confide in uh, 
khatibs. They, they will end up using your story in the khutbah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, you know, I mean, the guy was publicly doing it, but I, I still didn't mention right. his name, but I guess he felt mad. He was just furious at me. So what he realized was something that I did not realize, which was how precarious my situation was. I was only in a position of respect and authority because the imam, who was black, was um, kind of putting that on me. But I was really just some dude from the suburbs, white kid from the suburbs. I'm not a, um, you know, I didn't have any street cred. I wasn't, you know what I'm saying? I wasn't someone who really um, knew uh, how, I was a fish out of water and I'm white. And so I really am not in a position to be up there um, making clippers like that. So he saw my vulnerability and he started attacking me and undermining me. And not only that, he was mad about the whole regime because the imam had um, these uh, guys who were making alcohol and the guys who were hanging out with the homosexuals. He had them under, um, you know, like strict supervision. You know what I'm saying? He had kind of yeah. like he had kind of like put them in their place. You should have given that hadith of the prophet uh, yeah. when someone wants to become the emir, kill the latter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well. So, this, so what this guy does is he goes and he organizes not only the racist, but he also is organizing the guys who are like mad because they can't hang out with their boyfriends or because they can't um, drink alcohol and stuff like that. And you know, he's you know he's he's organizing these dudes. So now on my side, we had the Majlis Ashura and some other brothers who were, you know, serious about it. So uh, serious about the dean. So anyway, this whole situation is coming to a very ugly head. Okay. So, and by the way, I did, it's not that I wanted any kind of position, but it's just like, if I wasn't doing khutbahs, there's not going to be anyone to, to, who even knows how to do khutbahs. So what happens is I'm walking along with, a, with the brothers from the Majlis and, and, and right before they're about to call um, lockdown at night and we're walking along the compound and we see this dude and his group of um, guys that he's organizing around. And so now we're two groups that are like about to bump into each other. So I go up to him and I say, sound like him. And I stick my hand out to shake his hand. And he refuses to shake my hand. And one of the brothers says, how come you're not shaking his hand? One of the brothers on my side, he said, why don't you shake his hand? And he's, and I'm trying to put him in a position where he's, you know, he looks bad. You know what I'm saying? Now he's the one refusing to shake my hand. I'm trying to shake his hand. He's refusing to shake my hand. So um, the brothers on my side started, started, their body language started getting kind of, um, you know, aggressive and the guys on his side start getting aggressive and the officer who's in charge of the compound, he sees it, the lieutenant, he sees this and he says, all right, lock it down, lock it down. It was almost time to lock down anyway. So he locks it. He makes us go to our, um, our, our cells, our, our housing units and stuff like that. He breaks everything up. So I go to my, uh, housing unit at this time. I don't have, uh, uh, I didn't have a cellmate because the imam was, you know, in the hole. So I go in there, um, close the door and start to use the bathroom. I had to really use the bathroom. So when you, when you use the bathroom, you put a towel up, uh, hang it over your cell door so that it, um, you know, the cell doors are like solid and they've got like one kind of sl uh, sliver of a window. So you hang a towel over that so that no one looks in. Um, and it's also kind of a sign that you're using the bathroom. So I throw the towel up and I sit down, you know, to, to start using the bathroom. Well, all of a sudden the Lieutenant, who had seen us out there flings open my door, you know, I actually hadn't sat down yet. So it was cool. So anyway, uh, so he flings open my door and he comes in with another officer and he says, Royer, what's going on? I said, what are you talking about? He says, what was that about out there? And I said, I don't know, man, I said, some kind of misunderstanding or something. He's like, is he going to get hurt? Is that dude, is that guy going to get hurt? 
I said, nah, he's not going to get hurt. I said, I said we were about ready to, to to talk it out and figure it out when you when you made us uh, when you made us uh, break it up. And he's like, um, well, how come he wouldn't shake your hand? <laughs> and I was like, uh, I don't. I guess he observed all that, right? I said, I don't know. I I don't know, but I don't. I said, there's not going to be any problem with that, sir. He's like, all right, well, you just you know just make sure if there's going to be any problems. You know, I don't want there any problems to be any problems on my compound. I was like, all right, no, no, it's no problem, it's no problem. Anyway, the next morning, the officer comes and wakes me up, five something, you know, in the morning, and says, "You need to report to lieutenant's office." Well, when they tell you to report to lieutenant's office, that means you're going to the hall. They said, "Bring your ID." So I was like, "All right." So I go to lieutenant's office. I, I bring my uh, uh, ID, and they say, um, "You, uh, you, uh, you're going to the hall." I was like, all right, I knew it, you know, I figured it was just had something to do with this dude, you know, so, um, so I go to the hall, and they won't tell me why I'm there, so like three days later, they come and they tell me, hey, come with us, so I was like, where am I going, they're like, just, just come with us, so they take me to R&D, R&D is like the area where they, uh, you either come into the prison or you leave the prison, right, so, so it's like where the area where they, they process you in or out, so they put me in there, and I see there's three guys with riot gear on, all black riot gear, uh, helmets, everything, three, three officers. And I'm like, oh, my God, what in the hell is going on? And so they're like, come with us. So they, and they, they, the process, but those dudes are not talking to me. Um, they're not saying a single word to me. And I say, I say what, what are, what are, uh, what's this all about? He just clenched, dude clenches his teeth and says, it's the order of the day. 